Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> General consensus is this is pretty awesome, yes? All right, fantastic. Well, to morning, uh, this morning we're going to uh, continue in our study of the book of 1 Timothy. So go ahead and start turning there to 1 Timothy. After uh, our service time, and uh, don't rush off, we have, uh, we have some ice cream, uh, drinks, stuff like that. Maybe you brought lunches just to hang out. So uh, plan to stay around for a little bit and enjoy that. Uh, that should be a fun time. Father, we are grateful for this facility. We're grateful for this back lot, these trees planted 50-some years ago, Lord, uh, to serve as a covering for this congregation this morning, among other reasons. And Lord, you, uh, you've gone before us in a, a million different ways, and we're grateful for that. And Lord, we believe you've brought us to this place this morning, into this passage of Scripture, at this time in the history of the world, at this time in our own lives and the experiences that we're having in life. And you, de you desire and you've designed things to speak now to us. Lord, we believe this isn't some ancient book, uh, alone an ancient book, but that it's a book that's living and active and that it ministers to the hearts of those that come ready to receive from it. And Lord, we want to be those people. And so Lord, regardless of what's on our hearts, our minds today, what's ahead of us this week or later even in this day, Lord, we want to take a few minutes now. And we want to sit in your presence. We want to receive from you. Lord, we believe you are the worthy one to speak. And we are the ones that need to listen. And so we pray that you would speak into our hearts truth and that you would be honored even by our sitting here. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? A very quiet crowd today. What's that going on? Are we all right out there? Fantastic. You seem far away, though. Next time, front row people, could you come up about 10 feet and then everyone? Anyhow, friends, we are in uh, first... Timothy chapter 2, the first of three books in our Bible known as the pastoral epistles. Paul, the apostle, his letters to a couple of different young men who were leading congregations and the words of wisdom they need. And, and certainly for us, these are words of wisdom to us uh, for the governance of our body of believers or what we should be looking for in a local church uh, we, we turn to places like First and Second Timothy, and then certainly even in that, I believe there's just that practical, simple word to, spoken to each one of us as individual believers. What does God have for me when I turn to these pages? What's he, what's he saying? How is this going to impact my walk with Jesus even tomorrow? And so we finished up our first chapter, and just a, a simple, very simple summary, Paul's charge to Timothy to establish and maintain order in the church there in Ephesus. That as Paul had come and gone from that city, that things, they had drifted a bit. Different leaders, even in the congregation, had begun to introduce other things. And 
Paul says, Timothy, I need you to go there and I need you to get order and then I need you to stay there for a bit and I need you to maintain that order. And so from this point on in the book, that's the what. This is what I need you to do. From this point on in the book, Paul's going to begin to explain to Timothy, and this is how you are to do it. These are the things that I need you there to begin to do. And so if you look at chapter 2, notice how he says, first of all, then. Your version might say, if you're not reading the English Standard, it might say it, therefore. And the point is, it's a transitional word. And so he begins chapter 2 transitioning from chapter 1. And so in chapter 1, this is what I needed you to do, what I need you to do. Here now in chapter 2, he transitions, and this is how you're going to do that. And so these are very important lessons for us as we continue on here. He says, first of all, then. Now, if you look back now to the last couple of verses of chapter 1, where he's transitioning from, notice Timothy had just been told at the end of chapter 1 that he was to wage the good warfare, that he was to hold faith, cling to faith, like someone in a, like a raging river will cling to a tree or something that's stable so that they don't get washed down with it. He says, cling to faith, cling to a good conscience. Both of those, all of those working together for this concept that Timothy was instructed to wage the good warfare. And here now he transitions to how Timothy is going to do it. Again, chapter 1 is the what, chapter 2 begins the how. And in the remainder of this book, he's going to develop a whole variety of ways. Notice what the first one is, prayer. He says, I urge you therefore, Timothy, among other terms, pray and have the people there praying. Let's read uh, the opening eight verses of chapter 2. He says, first of all then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Notice the first topic that Paul addresses is the topic of prayer. And, and not only that, but he says, he begins by saying, first of all, we need to be praying. Now, I don't think Paul just randomly selected prayer as his first topic that he has in his mind. You know, there's six things I want to talk about, you know, just Pick one out of the hat. Where should we go with first? And he picks prayer. I think he specifically raises the issue of prayer as the first topic because of the importance of the place that prayer needs to play in our lives as believers and the importance of the place of prayer in our lives as a body of believers. Paul's point here, even just by using prayer as his first topic, was if Ephesus 
was to remain as a church that was fighting the good fight of faith, which we spoke of last week, then the area of prayer must not be an area that was neglected in their lives as individuals or as a whole church, a body of believers. And it's true for us as individuals, and it's true for us as families. It's true for us as a whole group, a body of believers. If your walk with Christ is anything like my walk with Christ, then you, I suspect that prayer is an area of struggle for you as it is for me. I think it's very easy to neglect prayer. And I think the reason is, is because there's so much to do, I have to be busy about doing it. My hands have to be active. I have to be moving from this place to the next. And I don't have time to stop and to pray. And the reality is, there's so much that is going on that we don't have time not to pray. We need to be a people of prayer. And so Paul says, first of all, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Notice again there, we've commented on this in chapter 1, Paul urges Timothy. Now that's a word which could be translated, he begged, I beg you, Timothy. Please, Timothy, be a man of prayer. Be a church of prayer. He says, I beg him. But again, Paul's not dictating, he's not commanding. And in reality, you can't dictate or command anybody to pray. Prayer has to come from within. It's got to be a burden on your own heart. I can't sit you down and say, now pray. You'll sit there for a little while and fulfill the hour or whatever it might be or half hour. But prayer has to come from within. And so Paul urges Timothy to be uh, a man of prayer and the church there to be a man of prayer. True prayer must be prompted by an inner conviction of one's need to be praying. And so if you're not sure how you should pray or how to begin praying, here's a prayer that you could begin praying. Lord, form in me a conviction that I need to be a person of prayer. And I believe God will answer that prayer. God, make me a man of prayer. God, work in me such a need that I actually stop what I'm doing and I get on my knees or I sit down in a chair or I stand, whatever it might be, but I actually pray. Prayer is an indicator of our dependence upon God. And it is only as that dependence forms as an inner conviction in our hearts that we we truly get down and do it. Prayer is a conscious sense of need. And that's effective, or that's necessary for effective praying. So Paul says, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. There's four different terms that are used there. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And those are four different terms that describe the wide variety of our potential communication that we can have with God. So when you think of praying, and when you think of prayer, how do you see that going down? For some of us, we think of maybe prayers we learned as a child, written out prayers, and someone said, pray this five times, pray this ten times, or whatever it might be, and so we just rattle it off. Our Father, our in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And as soon as we're done, we can get out to recess. That's how I learned prayer when I was in uh, school growing up as a kid. And so it was just a set of words, didn't really mean anything. I didn't even stop and think about what the words meant. 
Maybe that's how you think of prayer. For others, we might think of prayer as our long list. Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, bless him, don't forget her, and this and that. And we just rattle off a list to God. And it becomes, after a while, it becomes sort of mundane. Lord, same people as yesterday, hit them again, if you would. Or we begin to say things to God like, Lord, I need you to do all these things, and if you could have it done by the weekend, that'd be great. You know, and it's just sort of this grocery list that we give to God. I certainly don't think that's the sort of prayer that Paul is talking about here. I do think we can come to God with a prayer list, but it has to be more than just sort of rattling off names to him. Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Let's talk about each one of them individually. Supplications. Supplications, that Greek word, is related to prayer, but it's a word that sort of, in the Greek language, went on a journey. And it began kind of with this meaning, and then it added that meaning, and then it added this meaning over here. And it began as a word which simply meant to express one's needs, the kind of the root of that Greek word. And then gradually over time, this word that we have translated supplications had developed into meaning bringing our needs to God. And so it's a type of prayer in which we bring our needs to God. It's a type of prayer expressing that we lack in an area, that there's something that we need. And so supplications speak of prayer where we come to God with a sense of need about a particular thing in our lives, and specifically about a, an area of need in our lives that is impacting our heart in such a way that it causes a, a lack of peace or stress or attention. And so, God, I have nowhere else to go. I'm bringing this to you. That's this idea of supplication. Paul says we should bring those kinds of needs to God in prayer. And that's what this word supplications refers to. The second word that Paul uses in this list is just simply the word prayers. Now, I appreciate some of our versions. Maybe you're reading a different version. I have the English Standard. Some of our versions there say prayers to God. And I appreciate sort of that distinction or that clarification that is made. These are prayers to God, but specifically, these are those that are focusing on bringing kind of adoration to God, honor to God. Here's how G. Campbell, G. Campbell Morgan said it. He said that this sort of prayer represents the distinct act where the saints offer their praise to God. And so we don't just bring God a long list, but we actually take some time honoring God for who God is. We give him praise. We often think about praise from the perspective of music. And so we had our time of praise. Now we're going to have a time of prayer or a time of teaching or whatever it might be. But we can praise God even without instruments and even without song. We can praise God with our prayers. And we can and we should simply spend time praising God for who he is and for the things that he has done. There are some memory devices out there to kind of remind us for how shall we be praying. Some use the word pray. 
and the P would stand for praise. The R would stand for repentance. The A would stand for asking. And then the Y would stand for yielding of yourself. Like Jesus did, not my will, but your will be done. Yielding. Others use the word acts. The A would stand for adoration. The C for confession. The T for thanksgiving. And the S for supplication. Whatever of those you want to memorize or use none of them, in there should be included a portion of your time of prayer where you're giving God praise for who he is and for what he has done. That's all summed up in this term here, prayers to God, for who he is and for what he has done. I think it serves as a very helpful reminder to us that we are entering into the presence of God, that we're not just kind of getting some task done, we're not just mindlessly saying some words, we're not just rattling off some list to the air or something like that. We're coming into God's presence and we're reminding ourselves of who he is and what he has done in our lives. We're reminding ourselves that he invites us into his presence. Think about the greatest dignitary of the world today. The vast majority of us here, probably all of us, wouldn't get an audience with that individual. They wouldn't invite us into their presence. And yet God invites us into his presence. Come. And most significantly, he grants us access to his presence, as Jim read earlier in our passage, because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus read earlier where the disciples said, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way to where you're going. Jesus said, I am the way. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. That's the access through Jesus Christ. And so what an incredible privilege we have. And how important it is for us to remind ourselves where we're going and to whom we are going to. The God of the universe. Prayers of adoration, they have the effect, I think, of enlarging our hearts so that we can receive even more of who God is and what God wants to do in us. What prayers of adoration have the effect of doing is when our circumstances are overwhelming, what our prayers of adoration do is they lift us above those circumstances. That's just a minor circumstance. He's the God of the universe. It has an impact on us. It's so very important for us to include that as part of our prayers. And for us, not as in, just as individuals, but as an entire body of believers, we look at the overwhelming task that is before us as a church and this community of people, both here, Bucks County, and all around. And yet we know that our God is greater. And so we give him the adoration that he is due. And even in doing that, it enlarges our hearts of what he can do. So he says, I urge supplications. I urge prayers. The third one that he lists here, he says, I urge that intercessions be made for all people. Now, supplications are those prayer, prayers that we pray for our own needs, our desperate needs. Intercessions are those prayers that we pray on behalf of others. Intercessions are those requests we make on behalf of other people. How would you label your prayers? If somebody looked, like, took a transcript of your prayers, might they call your prayers selfish? that they're primarily about yourself and your, old circumstance, your own circumstances. Now, there is a place to be praying for yourself, certainly. 
but not solely for yourself. We should be people that are praying for others, interceding on behalf of others. When you think of our congregation, and when we come together and we pray, are our prayers solely for this congregation? And how God's work in a certain area in answering our particular prayers will impact our congregation and help our congregation? Or are our prayers lifted up on behalf of others to no benefit of ourselves? That's intercessory prayer. You remember when Moses, in the book of Exodus, he comes down from Mount Sinai. He had been gone for almost a month and a half, up on the top of the mount, communing with God. He receives the Ten Commandments. And when he comes down to the bottom of the mount, he finds that the people have engaged in sin, very serious sin. And Moses there is troubled by the whole thing. And as the interaction goes on, Moses had to lead these people in the, through the wilderness and on more than one occasion, he prays to God, Lord, these people. But he begins to intercede on their behalf. And one time he even says, Lord, blot me out of your kingdom, but forgive them. That's intercessory prayer. That's not the type of prayer that I tend to pray for other people. But that's a prayer that Moses prays for those people for no benefit at all to himself, solely for the benefit of the people that he is praying for. And so when we pray, there are certainly times of prayer where we're praying for ourselves, but there also needs to be a time when we are going before God's throne on behalf of others. It is a great privilege to go to God on behalf of another person. And sometimes we go to God on behalf of another person because they are not yet a believer. They have not yet received Christ in their life. They have no idea the way. They're like Thomas. We, know, we, we don't even know where you're going, let alone the way to get there, just like him. And so they don't have access into God's presence that has been won by the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, it is our privilege to go to God and intercede on that person's behalf, something they can't do for themselves. And so that's one reason why we intercede. I think another reason, just as important, is because sometimes even the believer, life is difficult, life is hard, life is weighing them down. And the pressure of all of those things coming upon them, you think about it, kind of resting on their, their neck, if you will, and driving their head down. And it is, those pressures are so difficult, it becomes almost impossible for them to lift up their eyes to heaven and to pray. Those are people that need our intercessory prayers in those instances. Those are people that need us to cry out to God on their behalf because they can't do it in that instance, in that moment. Look, I encourage you, if you are, you are on our church prayer team, we have an email list that goes around and anybody can be on it. You don't have to be something special. We'll, we'll put you on and you'll get the prayers. People that write into those almost always are desperate. If they weren't desperate, they wouldn't be asking for prayer, probably. But circumstances are such, would you please pray for me? And I encourage you, if you are on that list, don't just sort of scan the email and you got it. Quick thumbs up, you know, from your, uh, your iPhone or something like that. Take some time, stop, and go to God on behalf of those individuals that are having trouble perhaps going to God for themselves intercessory prayer. That is prayer on behalf of others. 
And then Paul says at the end of, toward the end of the verse, he says, I urge that thanksgiving be made for all people. Again, another situation, if your version is slightly different than, from mine, it speaks more there of this idea that as you are making supplication and as you are uh, praising God and adoring him for who he is and as you are interceding, do so with a thankful heart. Either way, the concept translates that among our prayers should be an attitude and perhaps even spoken prayers of thanksgiving, that the Christian should be a person of gratitude. I mean, how often does God, we, we pray our prayers, God answers our prayers, and we're like, great, now I got another one for you. Let's get to it. And we just bring the next one and bring the next one and bring the next one. And we stop and just say, you know what, God? I've been a Christian now for five years, 10 years, 15 years. I've been praying to you and you have answered this way and this way and this way. Lord, thank you. I'm grateful for who you are. I'm grateful for what you've done. Lord, even if you don't answer my prayers with the yes that I'm hoping you will answer, you're good. You welcome me into your presence. You love me. And you gave your son on the cross to die in my place that I might have a relationship with you. Lord, even if you don't answer anything the way I'm hoping you'll answer it, I am just grateful for who you are. These are prayers of thanksgiving. I think too often, maybe it's a product of the culture in which we live, the day and age in which we live. You have a need, what do you do? You go to Amazon. It's there by the time you get home from work, sitting on your front porch. We get things instantly. I think too often in this culture in which we live, our hearts are drawn toward what we don't have as opposed to what we do. What God hasn't given us as opposed to what God has. And so here we want to be a people, we want to be a church that develops a thankful heart. Not constantly demanding more. Other times I think we just forget to give thanks. You remember that story that's found in the Gospels? I know one of the places is Luke 17. And it's a story of where Jesus is passing from this community to that community. He kind of is, as he's leaving one community, entering the next. He's on the outskirts of one of those two communities. And there he finds a leper community. It happens to be 10 people, 10 lepers that have essentially been put outside of community lest they, in their thinking, affect, infect everybody else with this skin disease that they have. And so these 10 lepers are off on the side and they begin to call out to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, heal us. Can you heal us? Can you have mercy on us are the words that they use. And Jesus, long story short, is going to have mercy on them. What he says to them at that particular point in time, he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a specific requirement that if a person had a skin disease and that skin disease seemed like it was going away or being healed, they had to go to the priest. The priest would inspect them and determine, you know what, you're healed. God healed you or you didn't have a disease that we, the disease we thought you had, you're welcome back into the greater community. It's safe for you to come back into the greater community. So Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest. And the 10 lepers, they begin to go. Jerusalem is where they're probably gonna go. And so they begin to go down to this particular place. And on the way, their skin diseased is healed. Now, if, if you know anything about leprosy, it, it got to the point, it was bad. Fingertips would fall off, noses 
would fall off. It was just a bad, ugly disease. And as they're walking, the one guy looks at the other and he's like, hey, nice nose. You know, like they shake hands. Hey, look at that. You got fingers and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, whoa, we've been healed. And they all stop and they're looking at themselves and it becomes clear that they're healed. Now, in the passage, it tells us that nine of the 10 lepers do probably what a lot of us would do. They're delighted. They race home. They race to this place, to that place. They go see people they hadn't seen. They touch people they hadn't touched in a long, long time. The passage tells us that one comes back to the place where he had encountered Jesus to find Jesus and to give thanks. And Jesus says to him, where are the other nine? I don't know where they are. But only one came back to give thanks. Now, before you start saying, can you believe those other nine? May I remind you to look into your own heart of how many times God has answered one of your prayers and you forgot to go back and give thanks? These guys, they didn't go down to the pub. That's not what it's talking about. They didn't go and get involved in some sinful activity. They just went about with their lives. And I think that oftentimes happens in our lives. We forget to give thanks. And so how valuable it is to have one of those uh, memory devices like uh, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, to work into your prayer life the habit of giving thanks to God on a regular basis for all that he has done in your life. Paul says that he urged supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made. So if we could summarize then this idea of prayer, God is looking for us to be individuals, families, a church body of people that are praying in these four ways, praying from a place of humility. Lord, I need this. That's supplications. And when we admit our need, that's humility before God. So praying from a place of humility, praying in a way that is worshipful, giving God the adoration that he alone is due. Not a prayer like, Lord, if you don't answer this, we're done. I'm expecting, no, God, you are God. And I come to you humbly. I understand you know best and all this stuff, but here is my request that I am making known. Prayers that are worshipful, reminding ourselves of whose presence it is that we're coming into. God reminds us or he urges us to be mindful that he actually hears our words. And so that's an attitude of trust in our hearts. God, I'm not just shooting prayers up into the sky that go nowhere. This isn't a meaningless time. You invite me into your presence. You command me to come into your presence. And so in response to that, I'm coming into your presence. That attitude that trusts God for who he is. And then, as I was just saying, this hard attitude of gratitude. Listen, I'll say this. I think there's a lot of unknowns about prayer. And those unknowns many times bring me to the place of, why am I doing this? Why am I saying these things? In reality, sometimes I find myself thinking, why does God need me to tell him what it is he should do about a particular circumstance? Two things. One, he already knows. And two, I'm sure he's already figured out a better way than I could come up with. And so why am I wasting my time just saying these things about what I think that God should be doing? Because he tells us to. 
What we know for certain is that God calls us to pray. And where we, whereas we may not fully know how prayer works, what we do fully know is that God calls us to pray. And so in response to that, what do we do? We pray in obedience. We pray, God hears. And sometimes he answers those specific requests with a yes, sometimes with a no, sometimes with a not right now. Whatever it is, though, it is ours to come to him in obedience. Humble, worshipful, confident, and grateful obedience. God calls us to pray. Now, in, in addition, you'll notice in that verse, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. Those two words there, be made, in our English languages, the importance of it in the Greek language is the tense in which it's written, which is the present tense. And so we might reword that. I urge that prayers, supplications, intercessions, thanksgiving be continually made for all people. And so this is not something we pray once and it's done. It's something that we keep doing. We keep bringing our supplications. We keep bringing our adoration, our intercessions and so forth. That is, it should become the habitual practice of each one of us as believers and us as a body of believers to pray and to keep praying. He says, pray for all people. Who are to be the objects of our prayer? He says, all people. Some versions translate that all men and by that, it's, it's using the word that oftentimes we would use for humanity. And so he says, pray for all of humanity. Paul says, you are to pray for everyone. And so we can conclude, we have never met a single person that God is not interested in us bringing their name before heaven. There's not a person that exists whom God doesn't have a special interest in and whom he's not open to hearing their name when we come before him in prayer. I think many times we confine our prayers for others to just maybe our family or our friends or our church, but God would have our hearts enlarged for all people, even as his, even as his heart has room for all people. He would have our hearts to grow and have a heart for all people. It's hard not to care for someone that you're continually praying for. And God would have us to be in prayer for all people. Now, what are we to pray for those people? The vast majority, we're talking about all people on the, on the earth. The vast majority of those people do not yet have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I think we have a hint of one of the things, at least, we can be praying for all people. Look down to verse 3. We'll talk about this more next week, 3 and 4. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so at the very least, one of the things that we could be praying for all people, for everyone, for all of humanity, is that they might be saved, that their sins might be forgiven, that they might come to a knowledge of the truth, that though they are a sinner, there is one that paid the price for their sin. That's one thing that we can be praying. 
The second thing that I take notice of here when he says all people, that serves as a reminder to me and to us that all people includes both the men and women and young people that are doing great. They seem to have it all together. Life is humming along. They're walking with the Lord. They're in fellowship with him. You know, the outside circumstances are doing great for them as well. They're included in all people. But even so, those men, women, and young people that aren't doing so great or that are doing poorly in life here upon the earth. God calls us to pray that those that are doing well would keep doing well and that those that are doing poorly in their walks with God, they would turn from the path that they are on and they would embrace him. We pray, there's nobody like, well, don't pray for him. Don't pray for her. And we're going to have a time of prayer for Saddam Hussein. You know, 20 years ago, we might have said that. And there may be if some, I don't, I don't know why we're wasting our time praying for that guy. He'll never come to the Lord. God says, all people. All people also includes those whom we love and those whom we care about. That seems like an easy one. But it also can, can, uh, includes those we can't stand and we might consider to be our enemy. And don't go pray in prayers, in this case, like David, break their teeth, Lord. There's a context there. But we could pray for those we love, those we care for. We could pray for those, man, I hate that guy. Oh, Lord. We could pray for them as well. All people includes those that are called to lead us our bosses, young people, our parents, our church leaders, our government officials. Those are people that we can make our requests known to God. It includes adults. It includes children. It includes our fellow citizens. It includes those of foreign descent. All people consist of all people. And so if you ever find yourself thinking I don't have anything to pray about. Grab a phone book. Remember what they were? Phone books, you old people? Grab the church directory. You can have access to it. Just ask you know, the office staff. They'll get you access to it. I don't know who to pray for. There's so many people on the earth. Well, pray through the directory. And just go family by family, individual by individual, and begin to pray as God moves your heart for those people. And I'll tell you, if you're not in the directory, we're not... We don't make money off the directory or anything like that. It's an opportunity for us as a body to care for one another by having access to their name at the very least. And so if you're not in that directory, get in it. We pray through it every Tuesday or portions of it every Tuesday. There's plenty of people that you could be praying for. All people makes it clear that there is not a person on this earth that God isn't interested in in entertaining that individual's name, so to speak, as it's brought before them. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? I need a little more direction. You can't just say all people because I'll do no people. All right, I'll give you a little more. Actually, Paul will give you a little more. Verse 2, he says again, verse 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. Then, verse 2, and for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So if you need a little more specificity, you need a little more direction, 
as to people you should be praying for? Well, here's one. Pray for kings and all who are in high places. Now, in our context, that would be pray for elected officials or those that are appointed to assist those elected officials. Pray for our president and our vice president and their cabinets and aides. Pray for your congressmen and women, both in the United States House and Senate. Pray for the members of the Supreme Court. These are our governing authorities in our society in which we live. And pray for those officials in the lower courts. Pray for our state-level officials in Trenton and in Harrisburg. Pray for our county officials. Pray for each of the mayors and council members from the various communities in which we live. Paul says that we should be in prayer for those individuals that have been raised up to lead us. Now you hear that and you think, got it. We should be in prayer for those elected officials that I support and vote for. You will note, that's not what Paul says. Paul says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. So we're not called just to pray for those we like, those we support, or those we want to get in office. We're called to pray for every single elected official, governing official, that come into our lives. Again, Paul says, pray for kings and all in high positions. In all my studies, over all my years, I've never encountered an elected king. Those folks obtain their office by a variety of other means, which rarely have anything to do with you and I. And more often than not, they serve in those positions regardless of what you and I think about what they are doing. Paul doesn't say, pray for those officials you like. He says, pray for all who are in high position. And I'll remind you, at the time that Paul wrote this, his king was the emperor Caesar Nero. His king, at the time he wrote this, is the man who would go on and execute the apostle Paul. His king that he's writing about, Caesar Nero, is the man that thought he was the savior of the world. It's interesting that the very next line Paul talks about that they would come to a knowledge of the savior of Jesus Christ. His king was the guy who thought he himself was the savior of the world. And even though that king wasn't great and ideal and Paul probably didn't agree with every decision that he made or many of them, Paul doesn't make a distinction which officials we should be praying for and otherwise, I don't worry about it. They're a lost cause. He said, pray for all of them. What should we pray for them about? Well, certainly that they would have wisdom to lead. And we all got it all figured out sitting here, don't we? We know how it all works and how it runs. Now let's sit you behind the desk and see how well you do. Pray that those officials have wisdom to lead. That's one thing that we could be praying. But the second one I think Paul makes the point, he says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. He says that we, Paul, Timothy, the church, us, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, pray for them for the impact that I have on you, on us. Pray for them that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. We know in Romans 13 Paul makes it very clear that no authority, no governing authority exists outside of the will of God. Even those kings and emperors and presidents and vice presidents that aren't great and solid and godly, 
he makes it clear in Romans 13 that no governing authority exists outside of the will of God. It says this, Romans 13:1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then later in that passage, verse 4, he goes on to call those governing authorities God's servants for our good. God's servants for our good. Now, this doesn't mean that those authorities are perfect. It doesn't mean that everything that they do is good and right and shouldn't be questioned. This isn't like a divine right sort of thing that, you know, the ancient kings used to use, that they were appointed by God so they can't be wrong in any way. That's not what is is being uh, taught in that instance here. What it means, though, is this, is that God has established a system of order in our societies and that governments are in place to maintain that order. What it means is that that system of order that he has put in place is for our good, that those government officials are in place for our good. You might say it this way, that God's desire is that our officials would be able to govern in such a way that we can live without much thought even given to those government officials. It would be for our good that we don't even think about them or have to think about them. That's Paul's point. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. We're pretty fortunate in the United States of America, but there are other places in the world, both in history and even in this day, that the type of government that they live under profoundly influences their lives. It, it can profoundly influence our lives and aspects of our spiritual welfare. And so, you know, you think of those places where the faith has been outlawed and the practice of the faith is almost certainly to be met with harsh persecution and physical threats that's going to impact those believers even today there's many of God's people that live in lands with intolerant governments where those governments put all kinds of uh, pressure on the people and especially on Christians the time might come where we see that here in the United States in a great degree I think we're, we're beginning to see it in lesser degrees and so one of our prayers for our officials should be that they would be moved to not allow that sort of oppression to occur. There was an ancient church father, this is in the 150s or so, so maybe third or fourth generation church. And he was, this is a prayer of his, it's more like instructions he gave to those he was kind of mentoring about prayer. He said, we pray for all the emperors that God may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a faithful senate, an obedient people. And then this is why, that the whole world may be in peace and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man the accomplishment of their just desires. And so here's one thing I know in the United States. We had a Republican president, a Democratic president, a Republican president, a Democratic president. Chances are, in this crowd, some of those presidents, none of you liked, and other ones of them, they were your guy, and then it switched around based on your political persuasion. Paul calls us to pray no matter who's in that position of office. 
Not a lot of amens. You need to do it. You have to do it. It's a command. And if you're walking with Christ, it's your response to that command. So I'd encourage you, make that an area of prayer in your life. What do you do more of? Do you pray for your officials or do you complain about your officials? What do you do more of? One commentator I read, he said it well. He wrote, our complaints and criticisms of those who rule over us should be aired in heaven at God's throne. Another said, how much better it would be, in my opinion, if we would do less talking and more praying concerning political matters. And here's one from my favorite, Henry Ironside. He said this, I am quite sure of this. If we prayed more for those at the head of the country and other positions of responsibility, we would feel less ready to criticize them. We would be more disposed to recognize that heavy burdens rest upon them. And we would understand how easy it is to make mistakes in times of crisis. Our rulers need divine wisdom that they may govern well. Pray for your leaders. Notice Paul says that we should pray for them because of the impact it will have on us. You've probably heard it said that prayer changes things. Well, I think we can add to that little saying here, prayer changes me. One of the benefits of prayer is that it changes the prayer as well. I think that's the point that Ironside was getting at in that last quote that I have. Paul says, pray for them that you may lead quiet and peaceable lives. Quiet and peaceable lives. Looks like the, the same way of saying, two different words of saying the same thing. But in actuality, it's speaking of two different things. Quiet, that word there, translated quiet, it speaks of a tranquility from without. That is that there's no disturbance outside of us that can come against us that will truly shake us from that sense of peace that we have. The second, translated peaceful or peaceable, that's a tranquility from within. It's that calm attitude that can be ours despite the circumstances. So we're praying for peace around us. Lord, we just pray no war would hit us. Lord, we pray for safety in this regard, in that regard, the economy. You know, we pray for all that stuff out there. But we also pray, when we pray, there's an impact on us inside of us. That even if those things do come out there, it's not going to shake us in here. Paul says, pray for that peaceable and quiet life. You remember in Matthew 14? Anybody? Okay, I'll give you some more. Uh, in Matthew 14, you have the story there where uh, the disciples are in the boat. Jesus is out on the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is really like an ocean. It's enormous. And he's out there uh, in the middle of the sea walking on the water. The disciples are freaking out here, having difficult times or whatever. Finally, they recognize it's Jesus. Peter goes and walks out on the water with Jesus. He says, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out. Just come on out. And he goes out there. And there's wind and there's waves. There's a major storm. All this stuff is going on. And Peter and Jesus, despite all of that craziness out there, are calmly walking upon the water. Now, the passage goes on to say that Peter begins to sort of look around. And he sees the winds. He sees the waves. He sees the water. And he begins to sink. And so those circumstances around him had an impact on the stability of his life, so to speak. It had an impact on his heart. He began to worry. I shouldn't be out here. And he began to sink. 
Jesus, facing those same circumstances, the wind, the waves, the water, remains solid and standing. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about that tranquility within. So we should be praying that the circumstances are great around us. Pray that God will do that. Because then when, when they are, we can focus on other things as opposed to just surviving. But even in that, what we want to see God do is a work within us that even if the circumstances are nuts, our heart is standing strong and solid. We have that peace that passes understanding that the Apostle Paul talked about in another place. We remind ourselves that Paul said that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. One of the fruit of the Spirit, at least, is peace. And we can have that despite our circumstances. Prayer makes a difference. And often it changes us more than it changes circumstances around us. Listen, if, if our prayers were a waste of time, God wouldn't tell us to pray. Paul wouldn't exhort us to pray. There's value in our prayers. And so I encourage you, be a person of prayer. Paul believed that prayer made a definite difference, even in national affairs, that his prayers, our prayers, make a difference. And so I'd encourage you, pray for God in the big things, pray for God in the little things, pray for those you love, pray for those you can't stand, Pray for your leaders. Maybe God will raise you up to be one of those leaders. Be a person of prayer. Amen? All right, let's finish up with that. Father, we thank you for that. We are just a powerless people in the long run. And yet you invite us into your presence to make our requests known to you. And in some way in the heavenlies, Lord, those prayers move a sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing God. And so, Lord, in response uh, to Paul's urging here, we pray and we come before you. And I ask, Lord, as one of my prayers, that you would make us a church and a people of prayer, individuals, families, the body of believers. And Lord, we do that for your glory once more. Lord, that you would be honored as a result. And so we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.